On this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, we focus on building resilience and how the environment around us can influence the potential of our immune systems. Research that's been done with the autoimmune type protocol for eating and going into remission with your Crohn's disease, going into remission with ulcerative colitis, improving and, and people getting off of uh, thyroid medication for Hashimoto's because they heal their guts, improve their microbiome, and their immune systems can, it seems like there's immune resiliency in that way. Can the immune system heal itself and learn new tricks? Dr. Susan Haddo is board certified in family medicine, integrative medicine, and functional medicine. For 30 years, she has worked primarily in underserved populations and has been actively involved with teaching residents for 20 years. She practices integrative and functional primary care in the Hennepin Healthcare System in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Functional and integrative medicine, along with a love of gardening and being in nature, infuse her patient care, resident teaching, and view on well being. Environmental factors, lifestyle habits, and social determinants of health have a significant impact on patients' overall health and susceptibility to disease or acute infections. We're so fortunate to have Dr. Susan Haddo with us to discuss strategies for supporting our immune health. Welcome, Dr. Haddo. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. We're so excited to talk to you today, and it's, it's always really a pleasure for me to hear how our experienced clinicians are utilizing the functional medicine model in their practice. So I'd love to start out today uh, just to take a moment and hear how you're applying the functional medicine approach uh, with patients in your daily life. Sure, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I have found myself uh, using the tools of functional medicine on a regular basis. In particular, I just love the timeline. And then I find that a ton of my work happens in the modifiable lifestyle factors, really informed by the clinical imbalances. And I want to say that the clinical imbalances early on were kind of a little difficult concept for me to wrap my head around. And, um, you know, we were trained in med school in the body system. But I, as I read and learned and, and studied, the imbalances really echo the body systems to a degree, but um, the imbalances are built around function, and that makes them so much more rich for me. Um, so different organ systems can sort of cross state lines, so to speak, you know. We talk about um, assimilation, for example, and I look at the GI tract, of course, that's where we get our nutrients, but we also absorb things through our skin, through our lungs. It's a larger picture. Um, so my goal as a clinician, you know, is to provide the best, to, to the best of my ability, um, up-to-date knowledge, self-care skills, uh, nutritional and natural recommendations, and then drugs and surgery as needed when they are needed so that people can have and be in charge of their health as much as they choose to be and live their best lives. And then fun it's the functional and integrative medicine um, tool sets have really afforded me um, the capacity to do that more and more. And I, I'm going to say also that I think that this approach helps prevent burnout. I don't run out of options. Like I, you know, I'd hit drugs, I'd hit surgery. 
people, 30% of people didn't respond to anything, couldn't use that or even more. And um, I think it also gives me that opportunity to deepen compassion and deepen relationships. So thank you for asking that. Beautifully spoken. And I think returning to those foundational tools, to the matrix, uh, is so empowering when you have these complex patient cases and you're not sure where to go next. Just returning to those foundational tools is so, I'm so grateful that we have those skills. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of those foundational tools, of course, in functional medicine, we're always thinking about a patient's timeline. And we know that the early part of someone's life can really impact their health trajectory. And we recognize the importance of those experiences, starting with the prenatal environment and maternal health and early childhood experiences. So from your perspective, how might this early life experience influence things like the development of autoimmune disease or allergies? Let's start with in, in utero experience. Um, for example, I work in populations where we have a fair amount of stress and poverty and stuff. And so there's, there's stress, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's a lot of cortisol, there's a lot of epinephrine, and sometimes the uh, nutritional status is not optimal. So that child can be at risk for um, preterm birth, for neurodevelopmental problems and suppressed immune function. There's enough research to make those connections. Um, and then, depending on the mode of delivery, you know, and I used to deliver babies, but I haven't for over 10 years now, but um, C-section versus vaginal delivery, you know, how robust of a microbiome um, inoculation has this person received or how diminished. Uh, we know, for example, that the microbiome influences immune system function later in life. So these antecedents can be pretty significant. And what can we do about those things? Right. So, um, and this is where, again, I go back to the basics on those modifiable lifestyle factors. And I start with food. You know, a lot of my patients live in a food desert. They are on food stamps or um, they live paycheck to paycheck. And some of them never received some of that generational cooking and learning about food experience that some of us have um, that we feel are healthier than others, you know? Um, so, and now in the pandemic, so many people are struggling even more for adequate food su support. So we start, I even start back further than that and we start with breastfeeding and uh, encouraging all of our pregnant patients to breastfeed. I teach in a residency program and the residents are all doing lots of prenatal care and I supervise a lot of that. And um, we are lucky to have an awesome um, uh, lactation consultant on site, which is great. And there's so many good attributes to the breastfeeding and it gets moms inspired to eat healthier. Um, it's good for bonding. It's good for developing microbiome. And actually, you know, there's breast milk is not sterile. And we know that skin-to-skin -skin work is so important as well for transmitting the good bacteria. And we have now know that even the uterus, in the intrauterine environment is not sterile. There are bacteria in there that are our friends. <laughs> They're not all E. coli and listeria. But, um, so it also encourages bonding. And there's those pre and probiotics in the breast milk. So that's number one. And, you know, the physical environment plays a big role 
um, effect there too. You know, is there lead in my patient's environment? A lot of them live in old houses with peeling paint. Um, there's an asphalt factory between where I live and where my clinic is. And, you know, those kids have higher rates of um, asthma and allergies. I also was reflecting on this in the old days. So I've been finished my training in 1990. And back then we didn't have the Hib and the pneumococcal vaccines. And we treated a lot of babies for ear infections. We used a lot of antibiotics early on. And we were probably wrecking a lot of microbiomes without with very good intentions, you know. Um, and there have been some really excellent studies. There was a 2012 uh, cohort study in the UK of uh, children who had received antibiotics before age one and following them for a bunch of years to see who developed inflammatory bowel disease or not. And there's a high association of uh, more than two courses of antibiotics as an infant um, with inflammatory bowel disease. So this just lends so much more um, data. Big, and this was over a million patients uh, reviewed. Big data to this idea of good stewardship of the antibiotics and trying to maintain a healthy environment in the gut. We know that dysbiosis, you know, this bad gut stuff is one of the multifactorial contributors to um, immune dysfunction, uh, along with genetics, environment, and probably things we don't even know yet. Um, so we don't always know the link. You know, why did somebody develop an autoimmune disease? Uh, but there is some very exciting stuff with uh, seeing improvements in both GI autoimmune diseases and non-GI autoimmune diseases uh, with um, with some dietary changes. I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm, I'm not trying to sell anybody anything, um, autoimmunewellness.com has a great little set of areas in their um, website of research that's been done with the autoimmune type protocol for eating and going into remission with your Crohn's disease, going into remission with ulcerative colitis, improving and, and people getting off of uh, thyroid medication for Hashimoto's because they heal their guts, improve their microbiome and their immune systems can, it seems like there's immune resiliency in that way can the immune system heal itself and learn new tricks? Say, oh, I don't need to fight that thyroproxidase anymore. I can just fight those bad guys when they come in. So there's a lot of exciting things there. <laughs> well, I love, of course, that you brought up gut health. We could probably talk about that all day on its day. own. Uh, you know, one, one thing that is a great fortune uh, to me as a clinician that's somewhat fresh in my career is the ability to pick the brains, if you will, of clinicians who have been using the functional medicine model and really living it. And so uh, selfishly, I'd love to ask you a question returning to the timeline. Sometimes I find with patients when we talk about those, you know, prenatal or even maternal exposures, that they almost feel like, okay, now it's my destiny to have autoimmune disease or allergies. So when you are framing those conversations to patients, are you returning to those personalized, modifiable lifestyle factors to say, yes, perhaps you have a predisposition to something because of those early experiences, but look at all of these things that we have control over. Is that kind of how you're approaching that conversation? Absolutely. I, I definitely use that approach and it gives people hope. 
it actually, they, they, I've watched faces light up and say, really, I can do something different. Yes, you can. Maybe can we completely a hundred percent reverse it? I, I'm, I've taken to using the dial um, analogy. We can dial it back a lot so that instead of having this being so um, out of control over here, you can make a huge impact here. Like someone whose mom had type two diabetes or gestational diabetes when they were pregnant. Are they destined to get diabetes? I say, you are not destined to get diabetes. You have a lot. I mean, gosh, forbid you get an autoimmune type one. That's another story, but there's a lot we can do to help. And that's where, again, I start back with the basics of good eating. And um, that's uh, one thing I wanted to share in here. Uh, We do a bunch of group visits at our clinic because, you know, you can say the same thing over and over to one person. And you do <laughs> one person, one person wasn't, but it's really fun to say it to eight or nine people at once. And the, the energy evolves and the wisdom in the group evolves. And uh, it's, it's mm, the effect is larger than the whole, if I, you know, than the sum of the parts. Um, and so we, in our groups, we talk about anti-inflammatory eating. And some of my patients have never really thought about it like that. We talk about eating as a, an opportunity to have an inflammatory or an anti-inflammatory experience. And actually, we, we, uh, we ask our patients, you know, we put them in groups, we ask them to write down, what are inflammatory foods? What do you think those are? And people actually get it. Even people you would think, oh, there's no way, whatever, they get it. They know that eating the refined sugars and the high fats and the fried things are not the right way to go. But the support of the group helps them more than me saying, you need to eat this way. When the group gets together and says, yeah, yeah, I found I can finally do this. They see someone who looks like them experiencing and growing in that way. So, uh, and then it's really fun to watch the light bulbs go on with what are my symptoms? How does the food connect? Um, how can I feel better? And um, anyways, that's very exciting to me. Well, I think it- you keep tying, tying all of this really back to the matrix, because when I hear you talk about group visits and the added benefit of being learning from that collective experience is that community is medicine, that relationship part of those modifiable lifestyle factors. And so I think it just further illustrates how important that foundational aspect of health promotion is. Um, so that mm-hmm. is so exciting to hear that you're doing those group visits. We're definitely feeling excited about that as well. And I've heard you talk about gut health and inflammation and now community, just very generally speaking, I know this is a tough question to answer, but just very generally speaking, um, what are the top three things that you recommend for patients to support their resiliency and their immune function? Mm-hmm. Well, so, all right, I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say I go back to the basics, but I go back to the basics. I go back to food, but I, in that first category of the basics, I include food, movement, sleep, and how do we manage stress? Those are like my top things in that first category. And then I look at vitamin D levels, because I think, you know, up where I live, at least like where the 44th, 45th parallel hit here, it's, you know, eight hours of sunlight, if we're lucky <laughs> in the winter. So Uh, vitamin D and being vitamin D sufficient is crucial to both immune resilience and just in general good health. And then in the time of COVID, um, 
in particular, I, I'm going to kind of toss that into this moment, is uh, an immune support package that we've developed, uh, Dr. Parker, Kara Parker, myself, and our pharmacists at our clinic developed a little immune support packet based on the work that IFM put out and some other readings that we did and um, created a seven supplement um, packet that's about 30 bucks and lasts for about two and a half months, give or take. And it's not the super high doses, but it's good doses and it's good for immune support based on research that has been out there. Um, and half of our staff is taking it, a bunch of our patients take it. And when people come in for COVID testing and they're negative, we say, you know, and even when they're positive, we'll say, have you heard about these things? Let's try this as a supportive um, piece. So those are kind of my top three things. Sleep, food, movement, stress management, all in one. <laughs> Vitamin D levels and then an immune support packet. This is the perfect lead into my next question, how you brought COVID into the mix, because I would love to hear from you if someone contracts COVID-19 and they have an acute infection, is it too late to add immune support or can they still um, course correct a bit? Um, In my experience, it's never too late you can continue to build some resilience. Now, if you're super sick in the hospital and I'm not doing the inpatient world right now, um, that's another area, but I'm in that early exposure prophylaxis prevention place. And yes, you bet. Of course, the earlier you get on it, the better. You get a little sore throat. There's a lot of things you can do to clear out the uh, infection really in a couple of days from at least your basic other viruses, but I've seen it work in helping COVID infections too. Uh, Let me just share a story of a patient I've had um, who I thought for sure if he ever got COVID, he would be a statistic of um, fatality. So my patient is about 67, he's got, all right, how many hands do you have? He's got COPD. He's got polycythemia vera. He's got traumatic brain injury. He's got nerve uh, compression injury. He's on chronic opioids. He's got type 2 diabetes. He's got hypertension, neurogenic bladder. Mm, I think that's about it. And he's crabby often. (laughs) But anyways, he, and he smokes. And so um, he said to me one day, I think he he snuck in through all the, 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 safety precautions at the front door. And then up in the room, he says to me, I think I might've had an exposure to COVID. And um, I said, why is that? He said, well, somebody who I sit near, but not that near when I go to the bar once a week, um, (laughs) called me and said he was positive. And I went, "Mm, okay. So we ended up testing him and he ends up being positive and my heart sank. and so I used the Eastern Virginia Medical School protocol for early treatment. I put him on ivermectin. I put him on higher dose zinc. I used the um, uh, quercetin, melatonin, vitamin C, and they're all in there in the doses. So I don't really need to tell all those doses, but he got a little crabbier. Oh, I also put him on a steroid burst because of his COPD and he was a little, he was wheezy. He, 
he never dropped his oxygen saturation. He never went to the hospital. Two weeks later, he was feeling significantly better. He says, my crabbiness has improved. And um, I, I, really, I really thought that this gentleman was going to pass. So I think that just tells you, I mean, I had him on some things beforehand. He was already taking vitamin D and some, uh, some vitamin C, and he was intermittent with his zinc and intermittent with some things, but he cranked it when I said, this is what you got to do. So it's not too late. I don't think it's ever too late to do whatever we can do. Well, I know that you've been seeing patients who are somewhat in that acute phase of infection, mm -hmm. but let's talk about what happens afterwards a little bit. I'd love to hear from your experience, what you're doing, how we can support patients following the resolution of acute infection. Uh, we, we are hearing the long hauler syndrome talked about often. How are you supporting patients following their initial illness? Well, that's an evolving practice for me, even as we speak. I have, well, Kara and I, interestingly, in our practice, we've had a lot of people on a lot of different supports at the beginning of this pandemic. And I just went through my patient list the other day and looking at how many COVID positive patients do I have. I have about 10 who've, that I know of that have been tested in my system so that I can follow them up. And about four of them have been in more of a long haul situation, although a couple of them yeah, are after the 12-week situation. So we talk about glutathione, and I use a lot of NAC. I use higher-dose vitamin C as long as there are no contraindications. They don't have active kidney stones and different things, like 1,000 milligrams, sometimes 2,000 milligrams, two to three times a day. It's evolving. I don't have a, a real standard to ref, reflect on right now, but I was listening to a podcast earlier uh, about, about this just earlier today. And some people are, again, using the ivermectin in the post, uh, long, in the long haul phase and finding some good results. I don't think it's across the board. It's about 75, 80% of people seem to respond to it. That's better than just waiting. And I think the important thing that I have learned from COVID's long haul thing is that, you know, this isn't new. We've had people with Epstein-Barr. We've had people with Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses whose lives were transformed not for the better after having contracted an illness. So I think what it may give us an opportunity to is to extend a little grace to those other people who have been suffering for years. Yeah, that's actually interesting that you've mentioned that. I have actually seen that emerge as well, that people who have chronic repercussions of other viral illnesses are saying this actually isn't new. And while of course it's not positive that this is now emerging again, um, it is somewhat helpful and that the medical community at large is starting to acknowledge that this is something that's real and looking into solutions. And so in that way, it's been beneficial to some. Yeah. And I think the scale that with which it's happening now is the thing that's been the real eye opener. Yeah, well, it mm -hmm. sounds to me like so many of the things that you're discussing as being beneficial are helpful in large part because they help control our inflammasome. And mm. we love at IFM to talk about how even things like time in nature can really influence <laughs> someone's exposome and inflammasome. And I know that in your personal life, 
you love gardening and being out in nature and that that's something of value to you. And an area where we have started to look into the research is this whole concept of the microbioscape and this equilibrium between humans and our, our natural interactions. So what guidance do you have for really getting patients to do more time in nature to get more of that natural exposure? How do you uh, make these recommendations in real life? In real life, in real time. Well, I tell you, I'm lucky to live in a city where the city planners, many years back, believed in green space. So it's hard to walk into a neighborhood and walk more than eight to 10 blocks and not hit a park. So, and, and most of the parks have some little climbing things or playgroundy stuff or sandboxy stuff or, or a baseball lot or basketball courts. And so it's, it's not too hard to uh, find a space. Um, so I, I definitely spend time talking to people about what are their activities. Do they feel safe enough to go out and play or take walks in their neighborhood? Do they feel, um, do they have community activities, sports or uh, things like that? We talk about gardening in the city. People love to do that. They also like to just go out and uh, we have the Mississippi River nearby and there's walking parks around there. Um, so I suggest and make sure people know about all the free things that there are to do to get out and do some forest bathing of sorts, get out there and breathe with the trees, um, get your hands dirty and uh, know that it's actually good to do that, be in the, be in the dirt pull some stuff out of the ground and um, clean it off and, and snack on a carrot, uh, for example. Uh, we, we have a lot of community gardens around town. And actually, there's a couple of things. There's urban ventures for children, and they take them out in canoes. They take them out on the lakes. And they're all um, very, very affordable and often with scholarship type thing and um, through the city. There's the urban city kid farm that's up along what we call our greenway and it's big bike path that you can bike around the cities here for over 40 50 miles and they even sell their vegetables um, on the green path at certain times of the week in the summer so there's there are a lot of opportunities for structured and unstructured outdoor time even in our urban environment here there's a lot of pavement but there's a lot of green space to to keep with our friendly old friend, bacteria friends. <laughs> I think you've touched on a really important topic here. And it's something that I know is dear to my heart and really important to IFM as an organization, which is about, um, there tends to be a, a cost perception of functional medicine uh, that it, it won't be accessible. And you've just highlighted a number of ways that cost little or nothing to really promote health, getting out in nature, putting your hands and feet in the dirt, spending some time in the forest. These are accessible um, to most people. And so I think returning to those pieces is so critically important. Mm -hmm. And when you remind people of what's available, they go, oh, okay, maybe so, you know, and it, you just help turn the lights on a little bit. I know you have experience working with underserved communities. Do you have any takeaways for us to help clinicians who really want to support these communities in building their immune resilience? I sure do. <laughs> um, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to reflect back for a moment on the group visits, but I do this one-on-one as well. And we talk a lot about stress resilience. Uh, a lot of our patients don't have a lot of agency or don't know that they do um, until we work with it. So we do things like mindfulness-based stress reduction practice, mind-body practices. I teach people breathing exercises one-on-one. I teach them quick coherence through heart math, if you're familiar with that. And um, I've had a couple of times where people have a hard time finding a positive emotion to hang on to, to grow. So we search and we, but we usually can find something. And so that one of my big takeaways for my underserved patients is recognizing that they're in a lot of stress. And so how can we help them? And as we as we help them kind of quiet some of that fight or flight down a little bit, other things bubble up. The capacity to make a change, make a decision, maybe change a toxic relationship, maybe um, finally I'm gonna, I am going to take that training course or whatever it is, or I'm going to go to treatment, or, or there's a variety of different pathways that might move down. And I feel like we get to educate with that and um, really help them understand stuff about themselves. So that's one thing. The other is eating the rainbow. People get that. And I teach that a lot. And thank you, Deanna Minich, for the great tools that you shared with us for that. Um, children get it, but my adult patients love it too. They keep them, they put those rainbow colored things on their fridge and they, they'll, they'll do them. And, and see how many veggies they can eat in a day. Um, I talk about nutrients. We talked about the vitamin D, but I talk a lot about fish oil, vitamin C, D, magnesium, and zinc. And these are all really pretty affordable. And I'm going to tell you, medical assistance will cover a lot of them. I have a lot of people on the medical assistance. And it covers that, which is fabulous. And also, I mean, I like, I'm going to encapsulate it in this last thing um, to say that we like to educate our patients, empower them, engage and empower, educate, engage and empower. That is the way I see that because as they, we educate them with new tools, they feel they have, um, and they can become engaged in using those tools. People are empowered to make changes and changes that can be really positive. I think as we're coming to the end of our talk together, and I'm reflecting on what you've said, a theme that I'm really taking away is that as we're cultivating resiliency, that's that's whole person health that we would do anyway, even if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. This is really about cultivating that resiliency to make, make us strong just as organisms. And then inherently there's an immune, a protective mechanism in doing that work. And I've thought about this often. Most of my patients are, um, I do fertility. So most of my patients are preconception. And I thought all the things I do to support preconception health is inherently supporting the immune system because we're cultivating resiliency. And that's really what I've heard from Mm -hmm. you today, talking about all the modifiable lifestyle factors and repleting nutrients and maintaining our stress coping mechanisms. Um, And so I I think it's just a beautiful point for reflection that it's not necessarily all about the immune system. It's about really helping whole people, which is what we do in functional medicine. 
it's thank you. That's what I like to think of it as too. We're just really trying to be very good whole people doctors. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, mm-hmm. it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I think you've really highlighted for us things that we can do to um, take care of our health before we, you know, were to get any infections and then uh, to support our bodies during an acute infectious time. And then really what we can do to support ourselves following an acute infection. So thank you so much for centering all of your insights around the functional medicine matrix and the functional medicine model at large, which is so helpful for us to, to make our mental model. It has been such a joy to talk to you, Dr. Hado. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your time too. Bye now. To join the conversation on this topic, visit IFM's pages on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about functional medicine, visit ifm.org.